Podo. From the top of Leckhampton Hill, you can see all the way to the Brecon Beacons. That's almost 100 kilometres across Gloucestershire, Herefordshire and over the Welsh border. In the face of a whipping spring wind, I'm standing here with my dog and my partner, Anna. This is where she grew up. Not on the hill itself like some feral child, but here, on the edge of the Cotswolds. Yeah, that's really the centre of the town. And we can see quite a lot from here, so you can just about make out the race course in the distance. And then um, you can see the Eagle Star, which is Cheltenham's tallest building. Although it's not, it's not um, much it's of a... It's 15 stories. <laughs> something like that, and it's quite squat and, and dark. The vista before um, us shows the Morven Hills and the further away Black Mountains, um, but set ahead of all that, on an almost uncannily flat plateau beneath this rocky crown, are the houses, streets, and assorted bustle of the Regency spa town, Cheltenham. Right in the distance, past all the houses, past the kind of few sheep and things that you can see, there's this big donut like structure nestled into the heart of the landscape that kind of looks from this perspective it looks like it's kind of looking over the rest of Cheltenham and that's GCHQ. This is the story of a town. It is a story of madness. It is a story of enigmas. It is the story of right and wrong, good and evil and the human beings who colonize the space in between and it's also a story about spies. This is the town that knew too much. I'm Nick Hilton. This story starts somewhere in the shadowy mists of history. Long before the 803 Doomsday Book record of a town standing on the banks of the River Chelt. And it starts long before Henry Skillicorn. To some, the father of the town realised that the burbling mineral springs beneath the earth were an untapped source of financial prosperity. Like all the great stories of history, this one begins in the unknowable sweeps of time before man began his fascination with books and records and podcasts. I mean, if you go go back before the last Ice Age, then you're, you're probably looking at wooded country, a few hunter-gatherers wandering around, living a sort of nomadic lifestyle off the land. But there's, there's very little evidence of that. You occasionally find a, a, the odd bit of work flint, sort of Paleolithic styles. But it was probably very sparsely populated and very much sort of wild landscape at that stage. That's the voice of Phil Cox, Honorary Secretary of the Gloucestershire Archaeological Society. The Neolithic is when the first farmers migrated into Britain from Europe. In the Neolithic, they brought with them a culture. You do find monuments, and people of the Neolithic are famous for their monument building. It's what you see to this day. And so, in, and in Gloucestershire, we've got quite a, a rich heritage of Neolithic monuments. All along the edge of the Cotswolds, there are long barrows, which are burial monuments, dating from probably about three and a half thousand years BC, so 5,000 years or so ago. There's one above Cheltenham called Bella's Nap, which is quite well known. It sits on the Cotswold Way and lots of people walk past it every year. Then the Romans turn up and um, the Romans seem to like Gloucestershire quite a lot as well. There's uh, some amazing Roman villas all around Gloucestershire, Chedworth, I suppose, is up on the Cotswolds, is 
one of the most famous, but they're all over the place. There's an amphitheatre in Cirencester. The city of Gloucester was a Roman city. Cirencester was probably the capital of part of Roman Britain, of the sort of, of, the, of the southern part of Roman Britain. So Gloucestershire was very important during Roman times. And yet, for all the Roman interest in the area, Cheltenham is not thought of today as a Roman town like its neighbours Cirencester and Gloucester. Instead, it has an almost singular association with a period of time more than a millennium in the future. A spring was discovered in a field on Bays Hill in about 1716. It was noticed that the pigeons were pecking the salts around the spring. That's the voice of Jill Waller, co-author of Cheltenham, a history which I can't help but say in a very Hermione Granger voice. Henry Mason put um, a shed over it, if you like, and then his all his property was left to his daughter, and she'd married a Manx sea captain who was a bit of an entrepreneur called Henry Skillicorn, and he really established the first spa in about 1738. He put up a proper brick building over it, and it took off from then. He laid out a walk around the original well. I mean, I guess a lot of people think, Cheltenham, they think of this Regency architecture was it a very kind of cutting edge sort of modern town when this was all being built? And how has the legacy of that specific type of architecture changed over the years? It, it was new. It was very impressive. The locals weren't so impressed. When it first took off Shelton, they didn't seem that bothered about providing decent roads and decent decent lodgings. And I think that was often complained about by the visitors. But once it took off, yeah, the architecture has been described in all sorts of ways. But mostly it was balconies and, you know, the white buildings. It was a very clean-looking town. By the 20th century, Cheltenham was, in many ways, the town you see today. The world-famous Cheltenham Festival had begun in 1860 and from 1924 included the Gold Cup, the most prestigious national hunt event. If horses aren't your thing, however, the town started a music festival in 1945, a literary festival in 1949, a jazz festival in 96, and a science festival. In 2002. This smorgasbord of cultural activities was played out against the backdrop of a town that alternated between the chocolate box aesthetic of the Cotswolds and the Regency's splendour popularised in the novels of Jane Austen. It also became disturbingly synonymous with the Cheltenham Ladies College, an elite private school where people like Kristen Scott Thomas, former Home Secretary Amber Rudd and Her Royal Highness Princess Raja Zarith Sophia of Johor were educated and Cheltenham College the boys' equivalent, where Jack Davenport, Commodore Norrington from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, fact fans, was educated, and where the Malcolm McDowell film If, about a bloody schoolboy uprising, was filmed. For most people, this was a town of unrealistic house prices, of larking children wearing straw boaters and speaking schoolboy French, of cups of coffee costing two shillings and seven pennies in 1960, like three quid in today's money, which is a boggling amount, but not for all. In a sense, when I was growing up, I had no idea what Cheltenham was like because I had nothing else to compare it with, so I was somewhat oblivious to it. It was only, and you're absolutely right, the way you characterise Cheltenham as this sort of Jane Austen, Regency, retired colonel-type town, but we now move into the realm of what sounds like an oxymoron or, or a contradiction. I mean, my world was that of a working class Cheltenham, that's the voice of Jeff Dyer, a writer who was born and raised in Cheltenham. Even though Cheltenham is thought of as the archetypal middle-class town, of course, every 
town has its working class, but this wasn't the working, the idea of the working class that is so often fed to us of sort of cloth cap and mining and all this kind of stuff. But Cheltenham was a, a big center of light manufacturing. And also I think the crucial thing to say about my childhood and the world I grew up in, it was semi-rural. For example, if we go back in time, then either my grandfather on my dad's side or my great-grandfather's occupation, he was a bird catcher. Now, I think it's fair to say that probably nobody is employed as a bird catcher in today's Britain. But what I love about that occupation is that it takes us directly back to Hardy. It's a very Wessex kind of occupation. And that feeling of the Southwest, that was really where the the kind of main cultural influence came from. So it was always not exactly a shock, but it always felt inappropriate in terms of the, the television regions that we were lumped into the Midlands. And that meant that for the football programs that were broadcast on a Sunday, you know, we always got these teams like uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers, Coventry, West Bromwich Albion, Midlands teams, and we were in that region, apparently, but we felt absolutely no connection at all with, with them. We never felt part of the industrial Midlands like that. When Jeff told me about his grandfather, or great-grandfather, catching birds, it reminded me of a man called Steve, who I had recently seen on a neighbourhood forum, advertising his services as a rat catcher. I will humanely trap rats for you and take them away, announced Steve. They are popular for pets. Someone had disputed Steve's quasi-magical ability to transform street rats into suitable pets for children. And out of nothing other than nosiness, I decided to reply to his bizarre but benevolent offer. Hi Steve, can you rehome court rats as pets? I asked. Is this a professional service? Yes, he replied. I will come to your house and catch a rat. Am I able to keep the rat? Or do you want it as a pet? I give you a humane trap. You return trap with rat inside. Now there will come a point when this story is about catching rats, humanely or otherwise. But for now, it's about the devil. Let's rewind. Everything changed for Cheltenham in Regency England during the period from 1795 to 1837, when... Due to the incapacitation of the king, George III, the country was ruled by his feckless son, the Prince of Wales, who would eventually become George IV. It is a period typified now by, above all, architecture and literature. But for Cheltenham, it began beneath the earth, in the unspoiled waters that have run for millennia as the nervous system of a subterranean world. I came in the autumn of 1963 as a young doctor that's the voice of Dr John Harkup, chairman of the Morven Spa Association. One November night, about six weeks after I got here, I was called out to Morven Wells. And uh, obviously, not knowing the topography of the place, I had quite a search. And then I found this house and knocked on the door and nothing happened. And I pushed the door and it opened. I walked into an amazing house which had pea green walls and chocolate brown skirting boards 
and it was lit, of course, in those days by uh, gas, incandescent gas, which gave uh, an eerie yellow glow to everything. Anyway, I couldn't find my patient. I went all over the place. And then in one of the front rooms, in one corner, there he was uh, in bed, a very old man, not at all well. I was bending over him, trying to work out what was wrong with him. And of course, hadn't got any medical records. And um, his daughter walked in and she didn't see me in the gloom. And she held up a bottle of water and said, here you are, Dad, here's a bottle of water from the Holy Well. This will make you better. And I thought, my God, I'm back in the Middle Ages. They believe in Holy Well water. And of course, for a doctor who'd been steeped in institutional modern medicine, this was an absolute shock. There were still people believing in the power of holy water. And I just got hooked, and that brought me to the water cure and so on. In Cheltenham itself, the spa waters were particularly exploited by a local businessman, Joseph Pitt, who, like all good megalomaniacs, founded Pittville, a bordering settlement to rival Cheltenham with its iconic pump room. Pitt eventually went bust and died in penury, like most megalomaniacs do, while Pittville itself was subsumed into the boundary of its elder sibling. You know, the first mania for spardom began in Bath, obviously, which became, you know, the mecca of the star, the place you would go for spa fans. And the idea was that the water, you know, it was coming straight up out of the earth. It was completely unadulterated and that it was pretty much as pure as pure got. That's the voice of Catherine Curzon, an historian and author who has published a half dozen or more books on the Georgian period. So you would go there, there would be a little bit of a social scene. And obviously, as it became more fashionable, that social scene expanded exponentially. But the main thing was that you would just drink as much water as you needed. And the idea was that it would just purge the badness that was in you. So, you know, if you had a physical ailment or an emotional ailment or whatever it was, that the pure spa water, I suppose, you know, in some ways, people who will only drink bottled water now, it's seen as being virtuous. It was almost not a medicine, but it was almost like a natural tonic that the earth provides. And we go back to the earth, we drink the spa water, we enjoy the beautiful surroundings. So it wasn't actually completely overt quackery. It was a sort of relatively, this is nice, pure water, drink it, it will be cleansing and you'll get out of London. Probably getting out of London is the most important thing. Yeah, as you can imagine with anything like this, particularly in that era, the more it went on, the more quackery came from it and spas began to spring up in really unlikely sorts of places and claims about what spa water could do, the powers it had. Really what the heart of it came down to was getting out of that dirty air and getting into the clean, fresh air. And I guess it's really a forerunner of go and take a break. Taking the waters was coupled in 18th century medical preferences with taking a walk. Water and fresh air. It's just missing a bacon sandwich in Barocca and then it'd be my hangover cure. The fad for walking led to the emergence of long, wide promenades, a feature of spa towns even before they became associated with the seaside. Cheltenham's boringly named promenade, The Promenade, is now one of its most important retail thoroughfares. From the department store at Cav House down to Neptune's Fountain where the Roman sea god emerges on a horse-drawn chariot from the choking froth and into the calm Gloucestershire air. Walking this street in 2021, you'd pass a particularly interesting statue, 
The Minotaur and the Hare by Sophie Ryder. TripAdvisor reviews for Ryder's statue, and I disclaim this by saying that I think leaving a TripAdvisor review for a statue is a very particular form of insanity. Range from the bemused, a robotic leg. So it's an interesting art piece, but I didn't quite get it. Didn't notice a reason for it, and the bull had its, um, Johnson out. To the incandescent Mandy C. What a vile statue. It looks out of place and does nothing at all for Cheltenham Town. It's a very disturbing statue, when children are commenting on the private but very public view of the Minotaur. Hi. Hi, is that Sophie? Yep, speaking. That's the voice of Sophie Ryder, a sculptor whose vast depictions of a lady hair and Minotaur have been displayed around the world. Can I ask, what is the meaning of the the hair and the Minotaur? What are those two figures which recur in your work? What do they symbolise? Well, as a child, I, I studied Greek mythology and also I loved Picasso. And so he was a huge influence on my Minotaur, except that my Minotaur is not as evil as his. So that's where the Minotaur came along. But the lady hair, or the hair as she was back then when I did that piece, I wanted a, a figure, a female figure, to go with the, the Minotaur. And she started off being 100% animal, but then she gradually over the years changed to be half human. So yes, I just wanted a companion for the Minotaur. And the hair's ears just seemed to fit so well. They seem perfect for each other and it's never changed. I've never felt the need to change her in, in any other way other than she is now totally human body and a hair head. But um, they are my faithful companions now and they are my repertoire and that's what I use to illustrate my work. Has it been a controversial? I mean, I know that no. the Minotaur is in full figure, you might say. Yes. Maybe squeamish parents don't like. Oh. Has, has it just been taken to heart in town? Yes, funnily enough. I mean, it, uh, that was the only negative thing that I've ever heard of. But funnily enough, recently, Canary Wharf bought a one of the editions that's an edition of nine and Canary Wharf purchased one and actually it's been on showing Canary Wharf before it went to Cheltenham it was the only other place it had ever been but when they received it having bought it they didn't like the um, male genitalia on the Minotaur so I had to bring it home and and have have it recast in a slightly different less obvious they didn't want a fig leaf either because they thought that would draw attention to it so I just had to make the genitals less obvious. But it's funny, isn't it, that it's been in Cheltenham for 20-odd years or more, and nobody's ever really talked about that. I mean, occasionally somebody rubs their fish and chips into that part of it, but I've never seen newspaper articles talking about mm. about it. And so, the town of Cheltenham was born up, out of the relative obscurity of its provincial station, on the current of its waters. Beneath the surface, everything was darkness, turbulence and pressure, but appearing like a happy gopher into the bright light of day, that same water became a currency by which Cheltenham could trade its position up in the world. Until the present day, where, according to a 2020 study, the town has the fourth highest number of millionaires per capita of any UK town. One in every 29 people is worth a million quid. All because some nice clean water erupted out of the earth hundreds of years before. But it's not quite so simple. Because with prosperity comes an influx of Range Rovers and golf courses and aspirant Conservative Party politicians. But for Cheltenham it had another consequence. 
Well, the rumour was that, that some of the people who were choosing the site were interested in horse racing. And so the, uh, the Cheltenham races was rumoured to be a lure, but I think that's a myth. That's the voice of Richard J. Aldrich, a professor of international security at Warwick and author of a superb 700-page history of GCHQ, which is one of the resources I've been most grateful for across this series. Actually, what they were looking for was a good site with good communications within reasonable distance of London, but far enough away to be resistant to nuclear attack. And the sites they chose had already been developed as kind of wartime bases. So there was office, there was government office space, uh, there was some infrastructure. And Cheltenham was an attractive town. And, and, you know, what's really fascinating about the 1950s is how do you get top scientists, top mathematicians to come and work for government for government wages? Because the, the wages that GCHQ were paying were relatively low. So if you want a top scientist, what you do is you build a nice house on the outskirts of Cheltenham. Uh, housing was in short supply. And you say to them, well, look, you, we, we can't offer you absolutely top wages. We can't compete with IBM or whatever. But we can offer you a lovely house in a, in a lovely town in the southwest. And this seemed to work, actually. Well, of course, Cheltenham is the home to the Cheltenham Festival. The, the, the Gold Cup is a, clearly a, a, a major event in Cheltenham. That's the voice of Sir David Omand, who was the director of GCHQ in the 1990s and initiated plans for building the Donut, a building that would come to dominate the story of modern Cheltenham. But I don't think the Cheltenham and the GCHQ staff are likely to be any more prone to gambling than the general public. My hypothesis I have no evidence to test it against, but my hypothesis would be they would be less likely to because they're very rational, they know how to calculate probabilities, and they would know that the bookie always wins. Back up on Leckhampton Hill, the vista from which you can see the entire town, racetrack to donut. There's a limestone pillar that locals call the Devil's Chimney. It's knobbly and irregular, and largely unremarkable, except for the fact it's called the Devil's Chimney, and people in the area will insist that it is a site of great and mysterious importance. Well, I was told growing up that on a Sunday, when the townspeople used to walk in the town to church, the devil would sit up here on the top of the hill and throw rocks at all the, you know, good godly Christians on their way to church, and eventually, I guess they all bandied together and threw a bunch all the stones back at the devil, and he was buried under this sort of avalanche of stones. And the chimney is what you can see poking up. And we were also told that you should leave coins on the chimney in exchange for him. You know, it would kind of like pay him off, and he'd stay underground if he got some coins put on the top of the chimney. So do people leave coins? Or- oh well, I've, I can't say I've ever seen anyone do it, but something that supposedly you're meant to do. And it was there in Lecampton where I had my first sense of some kind of natural wonder in the form of this thing called the Devil's Chimney. That's Jeff Dyer again. Which was either the kind of residue of some hard rock that had not been eroded where everything else had, or it may have been some uh, the residue of some kind of quarrying or manufacturing that had left this, uh, this pillar, which uh, my uncle Darrell and his uh, his brother Paul, they climbed rather like sort of 
Hillary and Tenzing. There's a photograph of them of them climbing this. It's hard to imagine the devil trapped beneath the limestone hills of the Cotswolds. Indeed, it's hard to imagine these fields and paths have ever been touched by evil. There is something so mundane about the happy, polite practicality of the well-heeled people walking up and down the hill with their children and their cockapoos and their Tupperwares full of raisins, carrot sticks and hummus that they seem almost like an artist's impression of British normality. But if the devil were trapped here, it might explain some things. It might explain why evil has so readily seeped into the cracks of this town. It might explain why the world of the surface is not the only world here, why things have become inverted and paralleled. And if the devil wanted a place to bide his time, to learn the secrets of his friends and enemies, to listen in to the murmurs of the earth's joy and discontentment, he could hardly have picked a better place. This is a town that hears the world's whispers. This is the town that knew too much. On this season of the podcast. The fact that GCHQ even existed, I think, before Prime was not much talked about or publicised. just wish I could remember the 80s better. They went in such a daze of chaos and abseiling and jumping in that helicopters. <laughs> we had this little silly code and he texted me, the Guinness is good. So he was bled and purged and blistered and they had a contraption which George himself nicknamed the coronation chair where they would strap him into it. If it is a video game, it is the worst because you cannot derive any enjoyment from it. He ends up in London of all places. He ends up hanging from Blackfriars Bridge. So an ignoble ending to a, a rather unusual story. Yeah, it did, I'm sure, have cut around two years off the length of the war. He, he was a sort of loner. At the trial it was said that on one occasion he passed over 500 sensitive top secret documents. There's something about this obsession that is not quite right, that we would not want our daughters to have this like young man like lingering around them the way he was lingering around Alice. GCHB had succeeded in turning itself into a world chance, world beating digital intelligence agency. This has been the first episode of The Town That Knew Too Much, written, produced and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The music is by George Jennings, based on The Planets, by Gustav Holst. The entire score for the series is available now to stream on Spotify. This is the first part of a seven-part series, available on all good podcast platforms. You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Just go to at the town pod or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. If you've enjoyed the show, please go to your podcast provider and leave a rating and review, preferably of the rave variety. And do recommend the podcast to any friends, family and colleagues who you're currently on speaking terms with. That's how the show finds its audience. And feel free to tag me in any Twitter or Instagram posts at NickFTHilton and at Nick underscore Hilton, respectively, so I can feel the warm glow of appreciation. The Town That Knew Too Much is a Podo podcast. For more information, visit podopods, P-O-D-O-T, pods.com. Thank you.